so I had kind of always wanted to write a novel but I didn't think I had the right kind of skill set um, but this sort of became an opportunity to to do something psychological whereas I'd always considered fiction as you had to have this skill for world building you know right um, so yeah I started to sort of give myself a bit of a chance to see if I could create fiction and welcome back to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Anna James and I'm an arts journalist and the author of the Pages & Co series. Today I am very excited to introduce two of Vintage's debut writers to you, Pip Williams and Megan Nolan. Pip Williams is the author of The Dictionary of Lost Words, a historical novel set in 1901, the time when the word bondmaid was discovered missing from the Oxford English Dictionary. Pip's book is the story of the girl who stole it. Megan Nolan is the author of Acts of Desperation, a book about female desire, codependent love and women's bodies. It charts the obsession of an unnamed narrator with a cold man named Kieran. It's a pleasure to introduce these two new writers from Vintage to you, so grab your podcast beverage of choice, settle in and enjoy. So to start with, could you give us a quick introduction to the Dictionary of Lost Words and Esme's story? Oh, I'd love to. So the Dictionary of Lost Words is um, a bit of fiction woven through the true history of the Oxford English Dictionary. And it basically came about because I had a few questions about uh, whether women's words were properly represented in that first dictionary. And I thought the best way to explore that would be to throw a girl into the scriptorium where all of the words for the English language were being defined and bedded down. That question's really interesting. And I read the author's note at the back of the book about the questions of words meaning different things to men and women. I'd love to hear a bit more about that question, if you have any idea kind of how it was percolating in your brain and yes, a bit more specifically how that kind of factored into the, the writing of the book. Uh, absolutely. So basically, I, I had no desire necessarily to write uh, a book about a dictionary. In fact, I have quite a problematic history <laughs> with dictionaries. So um, and I can certainly talk about that later if you like. But I read a really interesting nonfiction book by Simon Winchester called The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which I'm sure many of your listeners have probably read. It's a really pithy, um, entertaining, story-driven nonfiction about the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, James Murray, and one of the more prolific and infamous uh, volunteers who sent words and meanings in to um, the scriptorium and helped them essentially define words and collate, collate the dictionary. I found it fascinating. And at the end, though, the thing that stayed with me was this niggling little question about the process of defining the English language. In order to do what they did, the, the lexicographers and the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary had to, had to review, I suppose, all the words that had ever been written down. Um, 
And the people who were doing this work were mostly men. So all of the lexicographers were men. The editors were all men. Um, up until very recently, there, I think there's only been one female editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, though I could be wrong about that. Um, and that was obviously, you know, decades later. Um, but all of the people doing this work were men. Uh, well, there are a lot of volunteers who were women and some of um, the people assisting um, with the words were women, including wives and daughters of the editors. The thing that struck me the most was, though, that this was a very Victorian endeavour. And most of the books that they were referring to when they were looking at how words were defined or should be defined, what the meaning of words were, were books written mostly by men. Because we're talking pre-20th century, um, and even the, the, the dictionary in the end was published in 1928. So the literature and the, the documents and the manuals and the, you know, everything that they referred to, the majority of it was written by men. And so I thought, well, if this is the case, if the data that they're looking at to define the language is written mostly by men, could it be that we're missing something? And if we are, does it mean that we haven't got a full understanding of what these words mean to women and by extension to the working classes, the illiterate, to migrants, refugees, all of the people who speak English, but perhaps didn't have an opportunity to write it down. Mm -hmm. So that's um, where the um... questions came from. Amazing. I am going to have to immediately ask you about your relationship with the dictionary now you've mentioned <laughs> that because I'm really curious about that now. Okay, so I'm, I, um, I have dyslexia and uh, always have, <laughs> always will. And so I have this refrain that just goes through my childhood, which is look it up in a dictionary. Anyone out there who has trouble with words, with the spelling of them, with recognising what they look like and so on, will probably understand what a problematic um, statement that is. If you can't spell a word, you can't look it up in the dictionary. Um, and so, uh, yes, so that's that's the seed, I suppose, of my problematic relationship with dictionaries. But But like so many things that challenge you, they also often interest you. And so I have been drawn to them um, throughout the years and, and here I am. I'm so interested in, you've talked about that obviously your background is in, is in research. Um, it's always interesting with historical fiction, kind of putting a story into history. To start with, I'd love to know, you mentioned a book that you read, but I'd love to know what other resources there are out there that you were able to use to kind of research what, what really happened with the compilation of the dictionary. Oh, there's so much. So okay. in, fact, <laughs> in fact, before I even thought to write a novel, when I was just in that sort of curiosity phase, and I think actually all novels must start uh, with curiosity. Um, I simply had my researcher hat on, I suppose, and was looking up, uh, Googling initially, you know, women's words or the meaning of words to women or, you know, all these sorts of things because I was curious about that question. Couldn't find anything really except I did come across a wonderful um, scholar's work uh, by a woman called Linda Mugglestone. And Linda Mugglestone is a dictionary scholar and she had written not just about the Oxford English Dictionary but other dictionaries as well, but she had written about the Oxford English Dictionary and some of the words that had been left out. Um, and so that's where I got, I suppose, um, a bit of a research 
kickstart. I knew that there were people out there who had, I suppose, addressed some of the questions I was interested in. And then I turned to um, this wonderful book, which became my Bible, um, by a man called Peter Gilliver. And he um, is a lexicographer currently at the Oxford English Dictionary. And he's written a history of the Oxford English Dictionary, which is quite a heavy tome. Um, incredibly, impeccably researched, lots of detail and for, for a fiction writer writing about a very niche subject, it was just fantastic. It really was worth its weight in gold. Um, but because essentially there's not a lot of information about the women who were involved in the dictionary, it meant that there wasn't a lot of information in his book either about many of the women who were involved. He certainly mentions and talks about the women um, who, who were important and some of them are in my book, but there really just isn't information about them. So he knew no more than, than I did and than anyone else did really. Um, and so there was a lot of opportunity to make stuff up in a kind of um, guesstimating way, if you like, by reading around the history at the time, by reading as much as I could about various women and then trying to come up with an amalgamation, if you like, to, to have, you know, three-dimensional living um, characters. Um, so there was a lot of that non-fiction. In terms of fiction, uh, there was also memoir, actually, because while this wasn't about the dictionary, it was about the period of time. So there was a little bit of memoir that I could um, turn to. Uh, Vera Britton wrote um, The Testament of Youth, which is a, a wonderful and unique memoir about that period of time just before and throughout the war, World War One. And I feel like we've we've talked about Esme as context in, in lots of these questions, but of course she is the heart of the book and an absolutely mm. wonderful character. Um and I'd love for you to just tell us a bit more about her as a as a character and a personality. Mm. So Esme, you meet Esme as a little girl, uh hiding under the um sorting table in the scriptorium. And the scriptorium was literally a garden shed in the in the garden of James Murray's house in Oxford. Uh, it was a corrugated iron shed, um, probably larger than your average garden shed, but a garden <laughs> shed nonetheless. Um, and inside this shed, there was a big sorting table. Uh, and you can see f pictures of this um, online. You can just Google it and you'll find a few, a few photographs. Um, and the sorting table was where I imagine, and, and I'm pretty sure from my reading, is where lots of lexicographers would sit around the sorting table with all of these slips of paper that, that volunteers had sent in with words and examples of their usage from books. Um, and they'd sort through these, put, put them in alphabetical order and so on. And Esme, in my imagination, is sitting under that table because her father is one of these lexicographers and her mother has died. And so just like today that you know he didn't have childcare, so he brought her to work and the only childcare he really had was the maid that lived in James Murray's house that helped in the kitchen who was no more than a child herself but but a number of years older than than Esme and so Esme is in this unique and privileged position I suppose to grow up amongst the words of the English language and I was really interested to know how those words would influence her and how she, as a young girl growing into a woman, would influence the words. 
And essentially, that's what the story is all about, those two things. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, To finish off, I would love to know what you're working on at the moment or next. Uh, Are you you allowed to tell us anything about what's what's coming next? Look, I'm a hopeless... um, Yes, you are allowed to ask and and I can't help but tell you. (laughs) I'm sure... I'm sure maybe I should keep things to myself, but um, I don't. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually working on a companion novel to the Dictionary of Lost Words. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, so it's not, a, it's not a prequel or a sequel, but while I was doing the research um, in Oxford, you know, obviously you come across all sorts of things that are interesting, but you can't shove every bit of research <laughs> into the book that you're writing. Right. And I'd... I'd totally recommend that you don't do that (laughs) Um, but some things other questions arose essentially and one of the questions was around the role of women at the Oxford University Press Um, and back in the time um, before the war and around the war women well especially before World War One women really only had were allowed to do one job at Oxford University Press and that was bind the books so they worked in the bindery Um, and I'm interested in, in that. I'm interested in a character who's told that her job is to bind the books, not read them, and what her goals in life might be and how World War I in particular might present opportunities for a, for a woman like that. So mm-hmm. much more of a working-class perspective than a middle-class perspective, um, but, but there, there's a shared time period and certainly a shared place in terms of Oxford and um, the working part of Oxford, really, the non-scholarly part of Oxford. Well, that's very exciting to hear. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, uh, The Dictionary of Lost Words. It's such a wonderful book. uh, And thank you so much for telling us a bit more about it. Oh, it was a huge pleasure, Anna. Thank you so much. That was Pip Williams telling us about her debut novel, The Dictionary of Lost Words. And next up, I'm delighted to be talking to Megan Nolan, author of Acts of Desperation. So before we get into the details, uh, could you give us a bit of an introduction to Acts of Desperation? Yeah, so Acts of Desperation is a novel and it's um, uh, about a romance uh, from beginning to end and it's um, sort of a portrayal of uh, an unhealthy, obsessive kind of love told from the perspective of of one party, the narrator, who is a woman. And so I remember, I'm going to hope that you do remember this, but the first time that we met was a few years ago at a dinner for another book coming out. Yeah, I do remember that. And I had just signed my book deal and you had just signed with your agent and I remember you telling me about the kind of seeds of what would go on to become this book but it's kind of changed form a bit since we first spoke about it years and years ago and I'd love to kind of hear about the kind of transitions and evolution it went through and how you worked out that this was the form to tell this story in. Yeah, that's so funny. I, I was just thinking about that the other day. That was like the dim sum restaurant in Soho, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think when I would have been talking to you about it, the original sort of vague idea that um, Harriet, my agent and I had gone um, discussing at that point was to have a sort of um, 
long form narrative nonfiction uh, investigation into sort of uh, the concerns of the book that, that that kind of continued into the finished version. So things like um, like self uh, self obliteration in in romance, like losing your identity in romance. And initially, uh, we thought maybe it would be something like a long essay interrupted with creative writing, you know, like more creative, less um, analytical writing as well. Um, and I went away and began it like that in 20, 2017, I guess. And um, and that's how it started. But then I, I ended up throwing away quite a bit of, of, of that, what, what, I, what I started with that. Um, and I think it would have also been in the same sort of um, time frame that I began thinking about fiction. So I had kind of always wanted to write a novel, but I didn't think I had the right kind of skill set. Um, but this sort of became an opportunity to to do something psychological, whereas I'd always considered fiction as you had to have this skill for world building, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I started to sort of give myself a bit of a chance to see if I could create fiction. Um, and then it, it it just went from there really. And, and thankfully Harriet was, um, was on hand to sort of encourage me because I had never done long form fiction before. And, um, and she was really supportive and, and thank God helped me edit all the way through. So um, yeah, she was amazing. Do you remember having a sort of eureka moment when you, when you felt confident that fiction was the right way to tell it or was it a much more kind of gradual process for you? Um, I think there was a moment where, um, I, so I actually wrote the, the end of the book first. And ah. when I had, I had written that part, it, it originally started as, a, as an essay because I actually was in the, in the place that that end section is set. Um, right. And then I just started thinking, oh, this story would be more interesting if this happened. It's a bit annoying that this isn't happening in reality. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, okay, well, <laughs> it doesn't have to be, you know, like I can, right. I can, I can make it fiction. And, it, and that, that obviously sounds like a very obvious point, but um, it, it, it seemed sort of um, like I'd, I'd never really, I'd never really um, thought that before that, that it can be as simple as that. So yeah, I think once, once I had that experience with the ending, it, it made a lot of sense to me to continue on like that then. The book is kind of described as an anti-romance um, and in that it charts the course of a relationship that's never really particularly healthy. Um, yeah. So to start with, I guess, could you tell us a bit more about your narrator, maybe starting with why you decided not to name her? Yeah, um, so that decision kind of um, didn't come about until I was quite far into the process of, of, of writing the novel. Um, I realized at some point when I was already about a quarter of the way through that I hadn't given her a name. And then yeah. for some reason, I quite liked that fact or I was a bit struck by that fact. I thought about it more. I thought, well, it's actually kind of a good way into the fact that this relationship that she's having with the, the male love interest, Kieran, is a sort of um, self-denial or self-destruction or, or a sort of, um, you know, uh, what's the word like um she's like sacrificing herself in order to be in this relationship and I thought mm -hmm. that not giving her a name was so, was one way to to kind of put that into into the story and it's interesting when you're talking about kind of how it's developed from kind of essay form and you've spoken about the fact that elements of the book are in part inspired by your own experiences mm -hmm. um I, rather than ask you about how your life is, it has uh, influenced your book, I find it fascinating when authors 
are kind of talk about that do you mind being asked about that because I think as soon as that's on the table it's something that people really have an appetite to hear about and they want to know which bits are real and which bits aren't what's your kind of relationship with that as you're having to talk about the book more publicly I sort of thought I wouldn't mind and now I kind of do mind (laughs) because because, just because I thought like because I think it's basically fair enough to ask me about it because there are biographical details that that I have in common with the narrator and I've never like tried to obfuscate that fact you know Mm -hmm. and um and so like okay so she's a young woman and she's lived in the same places that I've lived in um and she has these these relationships that are unhealthy um so it makes sense why people want to know I suppose it just seems really irrelevant to me in some ways because um and there's no reason why anyone else should know this but from my point of view the reason that the narrator like has those things in common with me was sort of um a choice to do with uh ease like my, like from, from sure. my own ease in writing the book because the because the point of the book was primarily about like her psychological motivations and her interior life and it wasn't about her external world beyond this relationship it was literally just um a way for me to get going with with the book to, to like have these um frameworks that I already knew and I didn't have to do research into making them realistic mm-hmm. you know um I, I can understand why some authors especially women do get really annoyed with that question but I definitely concede in my case it is a fair question um right. I would just argue I suppose that it doesn't really it doesn't really like improve the book to to, to know that you know I don't think it, it will um shed any like interesting light on on the novel if you try and pick apart which parts are realistic or not right right and I think well I don't know this is the question I suppose I was going to say at the moment it feels like there's a real appetite for writing about those kind of emotional minutiae of relationships and female Mm. bodies um do you think that is a recent thing or do you think that that's always been there and it's just particularly well served at the moment and why is that kind of interest and appetite there do you think um yeah I think that it's quite funny to think back on like my my reading life before before like my early 20s because I mm-hmm. I just didn't read that that w- widely in terms of I didn't read that many women probably like I didn't right. um I think unless you, you you sort of are conscious of um of of trying to seek out more women writers, then you obviously end up reading at a deficit to do with that. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure myself whether that is a new thing or whether I just started to 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 start to absorb it in my in my twenties. Um, definitely, there were there were like a couple of key books that I read before I started my book that I would say like had some direct or indirect influence which I I would say um it was like when when I Love Dick the Chris Krause book was reissued Mm in 2014 or 15 maybe um and everyone started reading it then I I I got a copy of it around that time as well and and it had a big influence on 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 sort of writing about debasement and like um and sort of degrading yourself because of desire and those kind of things that I, I I have um an interest in in the book also and then I also remember being very struck by the Gwendolyn Riley book First Love which is just like a real short sharp um you know blast when when you're reading about about this um also quite chaotic romantic relationship um but yeah I definitely feel like there is there is an appetite for for sort of um 
kind of forensic uh, observations about um, these these things that that haven't maybe been um, credited as very important in the past. Um, obviously, none of it is 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 a new concern in in life, but but, right. but yeah, I think I think there definitely is um, there's more space for it. I think, or or I, at least I've been seeing more of it. The second part of your question was was why is there an appetite mm-hmm. for this kind of thing? Um, I think maybe there's like I mean I was not I was not really old enough to be a part of it, but that you know the whole kind of era of um, I don't even know when this would have been, but I feel like there's definitely a pushback to sort of girl boss type uh, like shiny feminism. Right. And um, and that like people don't necessarily want to just be told you can have this like super cool life as a woman and it's going to be awesome now because it's just not the truth for a lot of people right. still. And and even though obviously it's it's not to say like oh and anyone who does have that is is wrong to have it or or that I resent women who do have those things, but it's just obviously not going to be the reality for the vast majority of women. So I think there there definitely was at some point in culture like a little bit of a turning of the tide and wanting to show these things about life that are, you know, either for, e- e- either whether that's the default of the woman and, and it's like something about their self-abasement or if they're external factors, I think there's definitely a way to show those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I uh, read a piece that you wrote about the impact of reading Knausgaard, hadn't you? And I found that fascinating and I would love for you to just yeah tell us a bit about kind of yeah the impact yeah. that that had on you and your writing yeah he was just really um important to me at that time in my life especially um he had um I say it in the article but he a, an ex-boyfriend of mine had uh had showed me this cover story in the observer and it was sort of um all about shame and writing through shame and about his um about his his novels um and I don't think I'd heard of him before that and and I just started writing these these quite exposing essays that did sort mm-hmm. of go into shame a lot, and so my my then boyfriend thought I would be interested in this correctly, and um, and then you know fast forward to a year or two later, and uh, he and I were broken up, and I was living in in London, and I was sort of trying to figure my way through these preliminary thoughts about the book, and I sort of remembered that conversation, and I went back and read Death in the Family, and um, and it just really became important to me. I think, as as you said said earlier, like the, that sort of emotional, really small detail that he obviously more more than anyone like goes into detailing became just very um, freeing to to read that. As I was trying to to let myself kind of do do something similar uh, in terms of like documenting these these small emotional crises and things like that. Um. So to finish off. I am interested in whether you think you will kind of stay writing in a similar sphere of this kind of confessional, emotional minutiae books. Can you tell us anything about what you're working on next? Yeah, um, so I'm writing the second novel at the moment. um, And the answer to your question, the first question, is that I I think more than likely, probably anything I write will have that in it. But mm-hmm. know that the next book is is uh, quite different and and won't be like the same. Um, it won't be the same sort of uh, interior perspective like that. And it without going into too much detail, just because I'm still working it out myself. Of um, it involves like um, 
in, well, it involves a, a sort of inciting incident, which is a, a crime that comes to like dominate the media, and then it sort of goes into the media a little bit. So I'm mm. um, going into worlds that are not um, I'm not intimately familiar with. So that it's interesting to say the least. But um, mm. yeah, I don't. But yeah, so basically, I think that there will be parts of that which still use my my skills in the area of um, you know of emotional observation and interior lives but it won't be the dominant thing about the book as it is with Act of Desperation. Intriguing and exciting. Um, thank you uh, so much for telling us uh, more about Acts of Desperation and how you came to how you came to write it. I found it fascinating. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about these two exciting new voices in fiction. You can find out more about the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams and Acts of Desperation by Megan Nolan in the episode description. And if you've recently discovered any stimulating debut books, Vintage would love to hear from you at Vintage Books on Twitter or Instagram. So keep reading boldly and thinking differently and keep an eye out for the next episode of the Vintage Books podcast. Thank you.